If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we will spend most of our time this morning looking at the last half of that chapter. It happens at least once a week. We want it to happen more often, but I don't know if um, your house is like our house, but our house these days, it seems to be extremely hectic. And I'm just praying for Mother's Day. That, that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying if I can just make it to Mother's Day, that means all the gymnastics for the springtime will be over. That means all the track meets and practices that I take Nathan to will be over. And I will be able to just exhale just a little bit. But until then, it happens at least once a week. And you say, what is this thing that happens? Well, we sit down for family dinner. And it, for those of us who don't do that regularly, here's what it is. It is a prepared meal. We sit there as all four in the Tillman family, and, and one question comes up. And here's the question. Tell us your high and tell us your low. It may come from Paige, it may come from me, it may come from either Mary Morgan or Nathan, one of the kids, and, and all we're asking is, how was your day? And then if it's not already stated, I state this. Let's start with the lows so we can end on a high note. I, I like good news at the end. If I'm going to be left with something, I would rather it be left with good news. Well, we've got some lows today in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 2, and there's going to be some lows. I mean, this is a hard passage that Paul is writing to a people, to a church that he has not yet seen. He longs to see them. He longs to be with them. He longs to have fruit in them and then be sent further, i.e. to Spain, from them. And he shares some lows, but in sharing some of these lows, there is a high that we will hit on right at the end of the chapter. I'm going to read all the verses. I know there are 29 of them, but I need you to understand, I need you to grasp, I need us to grasp and to be in the midst of this passage, we looked at verses 1 through 11 last week, had a couple of statements that we brought some clarity to, and I will try to jump from there through the rest of the passage for us this morning. So if you have a copy, follow along with me as I read. If you don't have a copy, the verses should be on the screen behind me. Paul records these words. Therefore, you have no excuse. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man? You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the, the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. I'm storing up wrath for myself if I'm judging. That's what he's saying here. We're storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's judgment, His righteous judgment, will be revealed. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And here's where we ended last week. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their uh, conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely an outward one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I bow and Lord, there is a lot in that passage. Father, there is weight. Father, there is much weight. Many statements that we find in this passage. And Lord, just as Sean prayed moments ago, I pray fresh and anew. Father, give us ears that we might be able to hear. Give us hearts that we might be able to understand and eyes spiritually open to your word because if not, this is just black ink on a white page. This is just words. But Father, you have so much more for us this morning. Father, you desire that we would come to grips with this. You desire that I would explain And Father, that your spirit would enlighten. So Father, may our focus and our attention be on your word. Our hearts open that you might speak. Draw us close to you. And give us application that we might leave this room. We might leave this place today. Different because you have met with us. And you have spoken words of action to us. Father, I pray that this will come about. God, I give you all glory. For you alone are worthy of it. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The lows. The first point. The first point is this. The first point is that there are reminders, and those reminders are given to you and they're given to me to show us our status or to show us our position. Just give me a brief moment and let me go back over. I will not re-preach the message, but there were some statements made in verses 1 through 11, and he continues that thought And so let me just unpack that for us as we look at the second half of this passage. There are four. All of us have sinned, whether we had the law or not. And because all of us, as you remember from last week, those of you who were here, all of us cannot judge others because we're in the same boat. There should be, there cannot be any finger pointing Because we all find ourselves without an excuse. We all find ourselves in the exact same place. And he goes and he continues to unpack that in verses 12 down through verse 14 and 15 where he says that all of us have sinned. All of us who have sinned outside of the law we will perish outside of the law. And all of us who have sinned under the law, we will be judged and we will perish 
under the law. There's only two groups, and both of those groups, either under the law or outside of the law, will be judged and will perish outside of Jesus Christ. You say, Brian, I still don't understand what's going on. Okay. Paul has heard about this church in Rome. He's heard about this church, and and this church is a a good church, and he's wanting to come alongside them, and he's wanting to come join with them in the ministry so that he might have fruit, that the gospel might spread in Rome, but even more than that, that he might go forward and further to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so he writes this letter because he's heard about them, and in hearing about them, he's heard that there's some Jews in this church, and he is about to just take them to the proverbial woodshed because they are thinking that they are better than the others that are around them. And he is trying to get them to understand, no, you're not. You are not better than the Gentiles in the church, and no, you're not. You're not even better than the the pagan Gentiles that are outside the church. And you're here judging, and you shouldn't be. Because all who have sinned without the law, they'll perish without the law. But verse 12 states, all who have sinned under the law, they will be judged by the law. You say, well, what's the law? You and I have a picture in our mind what the law is. Whether the picture that's in your mind is a set of blue lights in your rearview mirror that has pulled you over because you were breaking the law, or whether it is a symbol of government, a set of standards, it's a little different than what these Jews thought of as the law. The, the Jews, they understood the law. When somebody, anybody would say, here's what the law is, they would go all the way back to the days of Moses. And as they would be there in the days of Moses, they would remember the ten greatest laws, the ten commandments. But the, in, in essence, truly, in those days and in that time, there was some 633 laws given. And those laws were God's word. Now those laws, God's law, they couldn't help a person out. They couldn't be a, a, um, a stepping stool to help them up to that standard. No, the law, God's law, is just that. It is a standard. It is a rule. It is neither good nor bad, so to speak. It is just, here's the mark. And you have to meet the mark because you will be judged under the law. If you've heard the law, you will be judged under that law. And so Israel heard the law. Israel heard the law time and time and time again. Yet every generation, every individual could not live up to the standard. Nor could the Gentiles who were without the law. Statement number one, all of us have sinned. Whether we had the law or we did not. But there was a second statement in these reminders. In this first point, there's a a second statement. And here is that statement. There is a payment due because of this 
sin. For all who have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, they will be judged because of the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You and I have all seen the speed limit signs. We see the speed limit signs in Hernando. We see the speed limit signs on Interstate 55. We see the speed limit signs on the roads that we drive each and every day. And the question when you get in a truck with me is this. Is Brian going to adhere to the law? And if you ask me that openly, I say this. I will adhere to the written law, excuse me, the applied law, not necessarily the written law. Now, the written law is 55 or 65 or 70, but if you are like Mary Morgan or Nathan and we're trying to get somewhere and they're in the back seat and they said, Daddy is driving miles an hour way over the written law on this road. Well, there's an applied law. And I'm not trying to justify it. I am breaking the law, period. I am breaking it. And I understand that I'm breaking it. And I understand that if there are blue lights that appear in my rearview mirror, guess what's going to happen? I am caught and I will pay the penalty for that. The same is spoken spiritually for you and for me. There is this standard. And if you and I live opposed to that, you and I pay. And the problem is, you and I, we lived opposed to that law before we even knew about it. Because when you came into the world, when I came into the world, we were sinners. We were sinners by nature because our moms and dads, all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, they were sinners. And we also were sinners because we chose to sin. And we continue to choose. We choose to sin by our attitudes. We choose to sin by our words to those that we love most and to those that we don't even know. We choose to sin by our actions. When God says, hey, you need to do this and we don't do this, or God says, hey, don't do this, you know you're not supposed to do this, and then we go ahead and we do it. We are sinners, and we fail at the standard. And Paul records these words for those in Rome and he records the words for you and me to remind us that there is a payment that will be due and there is no way in the world that these Jews and these Gentiles in the church at Rome nor these that are sitting in front of me this morning that we can pay the price be reconciled a third reminder in this passage is not only that we've all sinned and that there's a payment that must be due but there is this third reminder and it kind of goes back into verses 1 through 11 but he expounds upon it he elaborates on it here in the verses of 17 down through verse 22 and 23 where he says you and I we've got to watch out you and I we We have to watch out because 
we may find ourselves as, as a hypocrite. You say, what is a hypocrite? Well, here's what I defined a hypocrite as. A hypocrite is one who says, who thinks, or who holds others to one thing and then does the opposite. We say that, that we are at this level, but we're really doing and applying this level. We hold others to this level, yet we ourselves slide right in under the door at this level. Let me read the verses again. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself, your guides to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others. And here's where the hypocrite aspect comes in. You, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Hey, preacher, y'all can say that to me if you would like. Hey, preacher, while you're preaching about stealing, are you stealing? You who say that, that one must not commit adultery, are you committing adultery? You who abhor idols, that's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. You're abhorring idols. Do, do you go and rob temples for those idols? You who boast in the law. You boast in the standard. You boast that you are a child of Abraham. You boast that you are one who understands and knows the Mosaic law, the law of Almighty God. Dishonor God by breaking the law. For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The picture is painted. The picture is painted for you and for me right here in front of us. And it's painted as a reminder for those in Rome. It's painted for those at Riverbend. It's painted for all of us to show the position and the status that we find ourselves in. I got a long story that I want to read and one point to close out this morning, but as a reminder. This past, uh, actually two weeks ago, I was reading um, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a uh, pastor and an author in New York City. And uh, he is uh, one of those men that when I read him, I have to read him multiple times because just to understand the weight and the, the depth that he is writing. But he records this story in his writing, he says, in the 70s, there was an enormous bestseller. There was an enormous bestseller for two years. A man by the name of Thomas Harris 
author of a book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, was atop the New York Times bestseller list. And in that book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, it was a self-help book, and it, it was coming from this stance that, hey, yep, you might be a little different than I am, but hey, what I'm doing is okay, and what you're doing is okay. And then in the 1990s, there was this lady, her name was Wendy Kaminer, and she wrote a book entitled, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. I think she came to my house, and she I'm dysfunctional and you're dysfunctional. It was a tremendous critique, Keller states, on I'm okay, you're okay. Basically, she showed how narcissistic um, the whole idea was that I'm okay, you're okay, that whole book. And for those of us that don't know what narcissistic means or narcissism is, it's having an excessive view of oneself or appearance. It's craving for attention and admiration. And so she showed just how terrible that book was. She came back and she wrote another book in which um, she was very critical of what she called the hard right, quote, end quote, because she saw a lot of people saying, yeah, there is evil out there and we have to bring back the death penalty. We have to go to war. She suddenly saw all these people saying, I'm okay, and the rest of you are in no way okay. And so she wrote this second book. And this reminded Keller of a story. And there was this uh, pastor and his wife, and they found themselves over in East Asia, they found themselves actually in a country called Kashmir, and they were, um, they were there. And as they were there, they took this boat ride across a lake. It was a large lake. And so they took this boat ride across a lake, and halfway across this crowded lake, their boat hit another boat. And when their boats collided, their water just came over the top, and it, it got them wet from about the knees down. And this pastor said, it's okay, captain of the boat, we're okay. I know we're wet, but we're okay. And the boat captain was agitated. And he, the, the preacher understood that he was agitated by his face, and the, he said, no, we're not okay. He said, no, no, we are, we're okay. Just keep going. And so he keeps going. And as this boat grows closer to the shore, and it gets faster and faster, and and this preacher and his wife are like, no, we are okay. And the boat captain is just more agitated and more agitated. And as they finally get to the dock, he throws them out. He also has his grandson with him. He throws him out and he jumps out of the boat and the boat sinks immediately. And he looks at that preacher and he says, you're not okay. I'm not okay. Because what you did not see is there was a huge gaping hole in the hull of the boat. I saw it, but you didn't see it. And that is exactly what Paul is saying to you and he's saying to me from this passage. You and I might look around and we say, hey, I know I'm not as bad as that person over there and that group of people over there. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You're just like that person over there. 
No, no, no. You're just like that group of people over there. There should be no finger pointing because every single one of us will be judged. And so he reminds them in all of this. And you say, Brian, is there any hope? I know on the slides that I have two more points, but let me just close with this. The only hope that you have, the only hope that I have, is found in verses 25 through 29 in us understanding something that is semi-foreign to our culture and semi-foreign even to our mind. Let me try to unpack it for us so that you and I can, can see it clearly, so that you and I can grab a hold of it and understand the importance of this term. Because if you and I would see it, it makes all the difference for your life today and my life. Let me read verse 25 down through the end and make a couple of comments. Paul states this, for circumcision. And that's the term that's semi-foreign to us. For circumcision. It is indeed of value. It's of value if you obey the law. If you can meet the standard, the rule, the, the measuring mark, of the law, circumcision is good. But if you break the law, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Do you understand the argument? If there is somebody who is physically circumcised, who has gone through that ordeal, and he is circumcised, he is a child of Abraham, so to speak, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish religion. He is a child of Abraham, yet he does not adhere to those tenets. He is, in essence, uncircumcised. But if there is one who is physically uncircumcised and he adheres to these things, then he is circumcised. Then, he who is, verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn. He will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but he will break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And that person, that person, his praise is not from man, but from God. You say, Brian, I don't understand anything that you just read. I, I, I understand that. Let me, in the next four minutes, try to get you to understand. Genesis chapter 15. 
God comes in front of Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're mine. I know in Genesis chapter 12, I told you that you needed to leave Ur of the Chaldees and you need to leave everybody and everything and go to a place that I was going to tell you about. And you did that. And after 900 plus miles of, of you walking and 25 plus years of you staying in one spot and then me getting behind you again and nudging you all the way here to Canaan, you find yourself here and you think that Eleazar, your servant, is going to be your only heir and descendant. And that's not the case. So go outside and you look in all the stars of the sky and that's how many descendants of your own you will have. And there was a covenant. There was a bull, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And God said, I want you to take those and I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to lay half on this side and half on that side. You can read it in Genesis 15. And here's what's going to happen. When the sun went down, God walked through the, the halves. Half of this dead carcass was on this side and half of it was on this side and God walked through and there was a covenant that was made. And in Genesis chapter 17, two chapters later, God comes back to him and says, here's what has to happen for you to be a part of this covenant. There will be a physical sign to this covenant that you're mine and I'm yours. And that physical sign will be circumcision. And so, Abraham, take every male that is in your family, all the servants, and you go and you circumcise all of them. And circumcision is a cutting away. But God also understood, because he states it there in Genesis 17, and he comes back to it in Exodus, and he comes back to it in Deuteronomy. He understood that there was no way for man for a Jew, for Abraham or anybody else to adhere totally to that covenant. And so some 2,000 years ago, there was one. There was one who was righteous. There was one who had not sinned. There was one who every time his mother said, go clean the room, he cleaned the room. There was one who every time that something was spoken against him wrongfully, he reacted and spoke and spoke correctly. There was one who lived his whole life from boyhood all the way to a man that did not sin. That took your place. That took your place, that took your place, and took my place, and took all of our places. And if you read Genesis 17, and you read Genesis 22, and you read in Exodus, you read in Deuteronomy, you read all throughout the Old Testament, God understood that there could not be any of them that would adhere to those covenants. That he sent Jesus, and Jesus became that peace that was cut off. And he stood, actually he was nailed to the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, why? 
Why have you forsaken me? What have I done? I have done everything that you wanted me to do. I have done absolutely everything. Yet, you've cut me off and you've cast me out. And it's all because of the folks in Rome. And it's all because the folks in the black seats today and the person standing on this stage this morning. And it's all because of every other person that Jesus was cut off. And that he willingly did it for you. What's the good news? The good news is this. You don't have any hope whatsoever in and of yourself. But there is a way. There is one who took your place. Who took your penalty. Who paid the price for you. If you would accept it. So that your praise, sir. So that your praise, ma'am would not be one of man, but one of God. I don't, I don't know where you stand spiritually. It's not for me to judge. But I do know this. There is one who loves you, who died for you, who cares so very much for you. And he desires for you to be his. And he made the way for you. It's personal. It's got your name on it. Nobody else's name on it. And he desires for you to come. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time of invitation, Lord, as we think of all the things that you have done, Father, how much you love us. God, how you prepared, even before there was a need, you prepared the way. God, I pray, I pray that as we stand and as we sing, the invitation would be open. God, you would be speaking to our hearts. God, drawing us back to you. I'm thankful that you forgive I'm thankful that your word states that you have begun a good work in us and you will be faithful to complete it. That one day, those of us who are in Christ, they, we will be like Him as we see Him face to face. Father, we love you. I love you. And I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this time. Would you work in Christ's name? Amen. You stand and...